Hey everyone, this is episode five of Be Electric with me, Jodie Shield. I'm a performance and business coach, a self-improvement author, a TEDx speaker, and a wellness entrepreneur. And each week, I'm excitedly bringing you a world expert in human performance, or a relatable key message that will help you become the best version of yourself and be electric. Many people are getting massive benefit from psychedelic plant medicine technology even if they don't necessarily have something to quote unquote heal or to fix. In this week's episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Dan Engel and he's one of the leading pioneers in plant medicine and transformational healing, two of my most favorite topics to talk about. Dr. Dan is doing some groundbreaking work to help integrate these alternative practices into clinical settings, which is incredible. He's a super fascinating guy and he shared with me that he actually lived in the jungle for a whole year studying and drinking plant medicine six days a week with one day to integrate. I can't imagine what that was like. He's also worked with the ayahuasca plant for the past eight years and he's the go-to medicine man in terms of plants and he's appeared on both the Tim Ferriss and the Joe Rogan podcasts sharing his research and knowledge and what was amazing is that he mentioned to me that he's learned more about himself in one weekend drinking and working with ayahuasca than he did in 10 years of psychiatry, which is astounding, isn't it? And he said something that I really resonated with, and that is that there's life before medicine and life after medicine. It was a fascinating chat, and I know that you're going to love it as well. Now, listen, before we begin, I need to share a very short disclaimer with you. So please listen in. Do not use any drugs or substances without consulting a medical professional. This is for informational purposes only and is not intended for use in diagnosing any disease or condition or prescribing any treatment whatsoever. The information in this podcast is not intended to encourage the use of plant medicine of any kind, especially without appropriate professional guidance and monitoring or without careful personal evaluation of risks and hazards. Be Electric and Jody Shield specifically disclaims any liability, loss, injury or damage incurred as a consequence, directly or indirectly, of the use and application of any of the contents of this podcast. Now, I hope you enjoy the next half an hour or so, and if you do, please subscribe, rate and comment in the relevant section of your podcast app and also remember to check out the show notes and learn more about me on my website, which is jodyshield.co.uk. Have a listen, get inspired and be electric. Hey Jody. How are you doing? To... Yeah, super good. So we were just talking a little bit before I started to record about a place in Peru that we both hold dear to our hearts, actually. And that place is somewhere I ended up eight years ago. And it was where I began my very profound and powerful inner journey into my inner psyche and connecting with my spirit and my heart dancing with the mother ayahuasca, the, the plant medicine. And so 
I really have come to understand through working more with ayahuasca that she, she calls you when you're ready. She calls you when you're ready. And I've spoken a lot about ayahuasca, not only in my book, but in in-person events all over the world, actually, because I believe so much in the power of ayahuasca, other plant medicines, and I think it's very important to to share my story and how it has impacted me. So I wanted to kind of dive in and start the discussion with Dan on the note about ayahuasca kind of finding you when you're ready. How, how true do you think that is? Well, I think of the old adage that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I think that happens in a variety of different aspects of our life and plant medicines just happen to be one of those. And there are more and more conversations now and books and podcasts and movies about medicine work and its historical application and its contemporary use and where it's helping us to go as a culture and a medical field. So it's a really ripe conversation. And certainly it was the case for me too that when I was calling in another phase in my life, is when I was spontaneously introduced to ayahuasca and I learned more about myself in one decade or in, I learned more about myself in one weekend with ayahuasca than I had in one decade of psychiatry training, psychotherapy. And it made everything that I had already studied feel like kindergarten. So I was hooked at that point. And there's very much consistently the experience that people have that there's life before medicine and then there's life after medicine. That's really, really interesting. So obviously you're in psychiatry and functional medicine and various different neuroscience practices, but how did you start getting into working with plant medicine? What shifted for you in your career away from the more traditional side of medicine to the kind of more alternative, non-traditional side of medicine? Is that, did anything happen in your career or in your life to shift you into the that alternative direction? Yeah, when I um, first applied to medical school, I was gonna go into surgery and ER care. And then I broke my neck two weeks before medicine or medical school started. So I started medical school in a halo. That slowed me down. I started reflecting on if I really wanted to keep standing on the accelerator and just be so driven and intense and I didn't. And with a spinal cord injury, I started getting really curious about neurology. So that got me into psych and neuro. And after I finished all my medical school and fellowships and, and, and all the training, it, was, it wasn't exciting because it was all about psychopharmacology and just adding medication lists to symptoms and never getting to the core. So I started a clinic in integrative psychiatry, helping people get off of medications, doing that with targeted supplements, functional medicine practices, but there's, I was still missing the soul of it. And after doing that for a few years, I was in a transition phase of my own life and I was um, curious about what else was available. And I just happened to be introduced to an underground ayahuasca circle. Right. And at that point I knew that was my path and no question about it. So closed up my practice, eventually moved down to the jungle and lived there for a year and didn't expect to come back and didn't really want to come back in, in, in the like depth of the practice because there was so much happening, so much expansion. And eventually it was clear that if I was going to be in my best service, then it was going to be to come back and be a bridge between the psychiatric medical community and the psychedelic, integrative, more holistic community. 
And so that happened about 12 years ago and just gradually got back my feet on the ground and um, started running clinics again and being connected to this um, growing movement. And I just see more and more happening in the landscape of this confluence of what I call transformational medicine. When we bring all of these different therapeutic interventions together into a codified system Mm. and we accelerate what we know is possible in human potential by weaving together these different practices that just as best we can aren't looking at one system or one level of self, but all levels of self, all levels of living and try as best we can to bring all of those different aspects into a greater state of harmony, a greater state of beauty, a greater state of, of inspiration, reciprocity. And through all of that, we get to a place of not only longevity, but quality is I'm not really interested about living long. If, if I'm miserable or helping other people live long, if they're miserable, I get more curious about blending both quality and quantity together. So blending hardware science with software science, like neurology with psychology and the integrative spirituality with peak performance. And all of these things are psychedelic medicines are very much in the center of this wheel. They're not a panacea. They're not right for everybody, but they do have massive potential for helping us accelerate our healing in a variety of these different psychiatric epidemics, as well as accelerating our experience of, of living well again. And how often do you go back and work with the plant medicine now? Quite often. Uh, well, I go through waves. Uh, I lived in the jungle for about a year uh, in an apprenticeship path. And um, that was a more um, frequent use. Uh, there was one place I was studying that we drank six days a week and we got to integrate on Saturday. <laughs> it was, it was full and I don't necessarily recommend that. Uh, but it is one of those training programs that when you get into the rhythm of it can really start stacking these experiences of accelerated growth, accelerated learning, accelerated development. And it's not always easy as you are fully aware also. Um, oftentimes our biggest teachers come in our most challenging moments. And so at this point, um, my experience is probably quarterly. Um, I studied with only ayahuasca for about eight years until my sister passed away. And then I got more curious about other medicines, particularly iboga and medicines that are specific for addiction recovery. And then I started broadening my experience of other medicines to get a better understanding as far as what medicines work for what person with which condition. And, and um, when we have a broader toolkit available to us, then we know how to use the right intervention, i.e. medicine, for the right person at the right time in the right sequence or order of the other things that they're doing. It's really interesting that you mentioned addiction. Um, my experience with ayahuasca, which is interesting because I've talked to other people about their experiences with addiction and it hasn't always been similar to mine. Of course, we, we all have different experiences, but my experience with ayahuasca was that she really supported me to face all of my addiction. And what was so incredible and very miraculous was that when I came out of the 12 day process, I didn't have 
any addictions left. I mean, I had workaholism, <laughs> but everything else had been unraveled. It was like my whole brain had been rewired. And I, th I think what I'm really interested in asking you is, can you explain a little bit about what the, what the medicine actually does to the brain? And, 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 mm -hmm. yeah, and, and, and what's happening to your brain during a ceremony? Yeah, when I think of the variety of different ways that particularly in medicine like ayahuasca works, I think of the different aspects of the self, body, most dense, and then in the emotional arena, heart, mental arena, soul arena, or spirit. And I also think of how we integrate these different aspects of ourselves into a cohesive whole so that we have a more integrative experience of wholeness and a more accelerated appreciation for our divinity, whatever that divinity looks like and means for a given person. But the fact that life is sacred, that we're important, that every life is important, that everybody has their genius to, to offer to the collective. And that if we're not expressing ourselves in some of these core related human needs, then there's going to be more likelihood for addiction because we're either trying to fill that hole or if there's a deep wound that we haven't gotten to, we haven't unearthed, we haven't healed, then there's going to be more inclination towards addiction in order to anesthetize that pain. Mm. And these are different aspects of the self that are complementary to how something like ayahuasca works in the brain. Because mm. yes, it's going to, particularly with ayahuasca, it helps to heal the GI system, the gastrointestinal system, where most of our neurotransmitters are produced and stored before they even get transported up to the brain. And if somebody has a chronic inflammatory condition in the gut, which is really prevalent these days, mm -hmm. irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, the list goes on, SIBO, mm -hmm. All of these inflammatory bowel and GI conditions affect our neurotransmitter production, storage, and utilization when we need them. So it makes sense that Michael Gershon wrote a really good book called The Second Brain, which is deep. If you want a PhD discourse on how the, how the gut is connected to the brain, read that book. <laughs> and it's very well known that these two systems are intricately related. All the systems in the body are, but particularly these two, the gut and the brain. Mm. And when you heal the gut, the brain feels better. For sure. And when you also heal the mind, the gut will improve its function, i.e. when we take care of our stress, when we take care of the trauma, we start to optimize our attitudes and beliefs about who we are, about our relationship with life, about our relationship with all of humanity, all of our relations. And these are also aspects that get healed and optimized with something like ayahuasca. So I think of it as a complex interwoven matrix of how medicines interact and influence our healing, both the healing side of the equation as well as the optimization side of the equation. Because many people are getting massive benefit from psychedelic plant medicine technology even if they don't necessarily have something to quote unquote heal or to fix, like one of the five primary psychiatric conditions that are epidemic right now, depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and pain, all of those epidemic level proportion. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a, an issue in order to be optimized, in order to help the worried well take care of our 
human neuroses, which everybody has. There are so many things that I want to ask you now. I think, wow, one of the things that was just coming up as you were talking is, um, you know, today, this morning, I woke up, a little bit of anxiety in my gut, in my tummy. But straight away, I'm asking myself, what's my mind telling me right now? What's my mind telling me? What's my mind telling my body? How's my mind communicating? And as soon as you start that very gentle questioning, it, the gut starts to gurgle and just release itself. And it's, it's amazing. So you're talking about the, the gut and the brain being interlinked. And I mean, my spiritual mentor talks about that all the time. You know, the gut supports the brain, the brain supports the gut. And it's just this amazing ecosystem. The second thing I wanted to pick up on and what you shared, which is such a, a brilliant point, is people, and I'm generalizing here, listen, I'm generalizing, I'm gonna caveat that. People wait until they're in crisis to go and get support. They wait until they're struggling, they're in this disorder, this chaos inside that, you know, we're, we're ill and we need to go and get support in some way, shape or form. Usually that's antidepressants, but hopefully at some cases it's something more alternative. But why aren't we, when we're feeling amazing, why aren't we amplifying how we're feeling? <laughs> how does it get any even better than this? You know, why aren't we creating even more joy? Why aren't we then tapping into plant medicine and, and psychedelics and microdosing to, to enhance and raise the vibration even more? Yeah, there's that opportunity consistently available. And with something like ayahuasca, it is known to be a purgative. It's known to bring our stuff up to the surface. And you either purge from above, you purge from below, cry it out, shake it out get it out. And some people don't like that experience of coming in deep, close, personal contact with the shadow and, and how that's going to affect the mind in that degree of like discomfort, as well as how it affects the body and the potential discomfort. I don't know of a more accelerating tool to help us heal our shadow than medicine work. And it's also important to know that Many of these medicines don't have uh, global scaling capacity at this point mm. because they grow slowly mm -hmm. and the global demand is massive mm. and we're not planting at the rate that we're harvesting. And so a number of years ago, Iboga was decimated in its global production or its availability because it was being harvested so fast. Wow. Peyote in North America has been a long-standing endangered plant medicine local to these communities. Um, psilocybin really is maybe one of or the only natural medicine that makes sense at scale because mushrooms are so easy to grow. Mm -hmm. But everything else grows pretty darn slow. San Pedro cactus, peyote, iboga, ayahuasca, the Sonoran desert toad uh, that has 5-MeO-DMT. Bufo. Yeah, the bufo toad. These are medicines that grow and mature and ripen over years and years. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to us also as a global medicine community to appreciate where the medicine's coming from, how our how are how is the de the global demand for these amazing technologies influencing the cultures and the communities where these medicines come from mm. and are we giving back to the communities is there reciprocity to the local landscape and the culture where these medicines come from 
And this is a part of our responsibility to, to recognize that we are an integrated whole. We were talking before about integrating ourselves as a whole human. Well, as a family of humanity, we're also integrated into the entire ecosystem and living network that's on the planet itself. And it's a pretty intense time on the planet when we think about natural resources. Um, in many ways, we have it better than we've ever had. There's less war, pestilence, famine. Um, but there's also this dire conversation around the global climate and how we're treating these resources. So it's helpful too when we get in touch with these natural plant medicine technologies that come from the earth. It does, it, it, it's, it's not surprising that they would help us return to a right relationship with the earth. Mm -hmm. So I always find it fascinating and just so humbling to have that relationship again with Mother Earth and our natural ecosystem. So as to be um, not only a pilgrim for our own work as a family of humanity, but the right relationship and the and the respect for all our um, interspecies relationship. I um I've heard about lots of different types of plants, not only psychedelic plants, but also how plants like the dandelion are rising up. And I know in the UK you drink dandelion tea and I haven't actually done it myself, tried it myself. I haven't worked with the dandelion plant, but I find it really interesting that I don't know if this is the truth, if this, this is the truth, but I sense that the ayahuasca and the plant kingdom, obviously this started rising up in the Western world relatively recently, but it's also, is it right to say paving the way for other plants to come through like the dandelion? Dandelion is a great example too, particularly historically, we have known as, uh, you know, before a couple of hundred years ago, we had to be pretty resourceful individually for finding our own cures and remedies. There weren't really available hospitals uh, and the, the medical care that was available uh, was typically interventional emergency care, but the preventative care and the chronic care that was usually left to us as individuals to figure it out. <laughs> and it was usually oral tradition and trial and error, but we became really resourceful of, of having a, a direct relationship with nature. And today, most people think of dandelion as this weed. It's this annoying weed. It keeps coming back. I need to keep trimming it back. But it's a weed is essentially a medicine that we haven't found its properties for benefit yet. So we just call it a weed. But once it has purpose and meaning and benefit, then we call it a medicine. So there's this fine line, and I get the sense that a lot of the things that we call in weeds and, and things that are annoying are, are things that we just simply haven't found its use. It wouldn't be here if it didn't have a use. The entire evolutionary ecosystem that is the Earth is a very self-sustained, intelligent organism. And there don't tend to be things around that don't serve some benefit to the whole. I want to dive into psychedelic research because it's something I'm super interested in and I know that you are involved a lot with psychedelic research as a form of medicinal research. Can you explain a little bit about what you do and how it works and how it can support people? Yeah, one of the reasons I'm involved in, and historically I've not been involved in psychedelic research, I've been more of an experiential engineer than a neuroscientist research because I enjoy the process of supporting people in having experiences that are going to accelerate their consciousness. Mm. 
and their experience of wholeness, fulfillment, inspiration, joy, and therefore service. Because it's when our cup is full that it can outflow and pour out for benefit to others. So what are the different ways we get to do that? So historically, it's been more around the experience part of our holding and healing. And now more and more, it's also in the research arena because the research moves science, but the story moves culture. So when we can really appreciate and, and ground the experience, and this is very much what you're doing with your podcast and your platform is you're sharing your story and you're sharing other people's stories. And it's the stories that are so compelling because it's the stories that we can really relate to that moves culture. And that's why 10 years ago, not many people were really speaking about ayahuasca. And when they did talk about it, it was this really dark, trippy, weird, shadowy thing that um, was a bit scary for people. And it kind of still is, but now we have more and more people speaking about the benefits, speaking about the right use, speaking about the whole system's perspective, particularly around sustainability. And again, more and more information around the, the benefits is now growing this movement and it's just taking off. The data that I think is really helpful to catalog and show over time is correlated with the storyline. Because when people are having stories, what's happening with their physiology? What's happening with their brain? What's happening with their body? What's happening with their nervous system? What's happening with their relationships? So when I think of the things that we're tracking, biometrics, what's happening physiologically? What's happening with people's chronic inflammatory conditions? What do their inflammatory markers look like? What do their gut microbiome markers look like? What do their longevity markers look like? And that's an exhaust, that's a long list. Also under biometrics, if we're just talking about the biology of the system, is not only the body itself, but the brain and neurometrics. What's the nervous system look like? Are people shifting from sympathetic overdrive to parasympathetic rest and regeneration and healing? And can we find, we can, what are the neurometrics that show that progression? So I think of biometrics, I think of sociometrics and life metrics. What do people's relationships look like? What's their quality of life look like? What are the experiences that people have in their communities? And is it, is it possible that contemporarily, like historically, when there are many people working with these kinds of technologies in a given ecosystem, in a given community, what's the health and the vibrancy of that community, of the whole system itself? And then we look at psychometrics, which is the, the mind piece. Most of the psychometrics are subjective, like how are you feeling? What's your depression score like, your anxiety score like, your PTSD score, you know, all of these different afflictions. And, and we can show benefit over time, how people are not only experiencing themselves, but how are they connecting their process of finding meaning in their suffering and empowerment through the process of their challenge so that they can participate in their healing. And it's not just this old paradigm where we go see the person in the white coat and we give them all of our symptoms and we expect that person to fix us. It's very different. These medicines aren't about fixing us. These medicines are about helping us to see truth. And through that truth, it's up to us to do the work. It's like giving us a more clarified map of the path forward. So as, as opposed to 
bumbling around trying to find the peak of the mountain. Now we have a more clear map, but it's still our work to make. It's still our walk to do. And this is how we're reformulating in more of a contemporary language things that Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell were speaking about in the hero's journey and the collective unconscious and this process of getting in touch with all these different aspects of ourself and actually rewriting the story that we choose to live our life by. Mm. And when we take all of this into consideration, then we have this expanded potential of growing a movement in transformational medicine. Right? We've been in allopathic medicine that turned into functional medicine. That's better, but it's still fairly reductionistic. It's not totally looking at all aspects of the self. It's a more clarified view of how to work with the body. But when we think about transforming the experience of humanness into its optimized potential, then we also need a clinical availability for people to go into a registered facility with trained providers to be able to have a transformational experience and to start to track that data and move the whole needle of medicine forward. I was thinking a lot about lots of different things as you were talking. What um, forms of psychedelic medicine do you most commonly use in your work? Are there any specific types of medicine that you've found to be most effective in your research? Um, yeah, let me answer those questions separately. Because uh, unfortunately, many of the medicines that are most effective are not legal. So they're not available for widespread use or data collection or research unless you're in one of a few selected centers mm -hmm. that's gone through all of the necessary and important um, internal review board and subscription for being able to use these medicines in a good way and then track the data. So I have a, a mad degree of respect, huge respect to people in the research field that are working diligently to show the benefit and to continue to move this medical field along. And so in practice, the ones that we typically use are ketamine and cannabis, because those are legal here in Colorado. Ketamine's been off-label use as an anesthetic for treatment-resistant depression for decades, but now people are starting to use it more and more because they appreciate this is the one that's legal that we can use. So there's been this explosion in ketamine clinics Cannabis is legal in most states, and it has massive benefit. I do believe that many people use it too much in, in a recreational setting that can water down or diminish its medical potential. And I think a lot of people are also using it for medicine and, and medical reasons, too. So those are the two that are classically available for use. The, ones, the two that are coming on the legal landscape for medical use therapeutically to be legal fairly soon are MDMA and psilocybin. Mm. Here in the state, likely to be legal in the next 18 months, plus or minus. Both of them? Both of them, separately, because, but they're on a parallel path. They're both in phase three trials. They both have been green-lighted for breakthrough therapy. Um, MDMA is already being rolled out for expanded access through MAPS and their relationship with the federal government. It's a slow go. They've only allowed 50 clients at eight different centers mm -hmm. total for the next foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. And that's a smidgen of a drop in the bucket of the need, particularly when we think of 30 to 40 
or so veterans committing suicide every day in the United States alone with chronic severe PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. So the demand is massive. And I do believe MDMA and psilocybin have great potential because they are scalable. And many of these medicines too, like ayahuasca has been synthesized in a laboratory version of it called pharmawasca for quite some time. That's been studied extensively. So if the medicines are going to be studied and then they're natural medicines that slow grow, then I expect it's probably going to be their synthetic counterparts that are going to be studied more directly, like synthetic mescaline, if we're talking about peyote or San Pedro cactus, both of which have massive benefit. Ibogaine, which is the primary alkaloid from Iboga, which is the most powerful medicine we know of on the planet for addiction recovery from opiate dependence. And opiate dependence is a massive mm. cultural problem, especially in the States. I'm not sure about globally, but I get the sense that that's similar Can you elsewhere. give some statistics about opioids just so that everybody can understand the, the problem? Yeah, the rates, of, the rates of dependence at this current trajectory are expected to be half a million overdoses in the next 10 years. It's crazy. And that has gone up about 800% in the last 30 years. And just last week, there was a um, head, he was either a head science officer or a head admin officer at one of the pharmaceutical companies, just got five years in prison because of false advertising about opiate safety. So we've known, it's like R.J. Reynolds in the whole smoking epidemic in the 50s. And R.J. Reynolds was sitting on all of this data that was very clear that smoking is addictive and caused cancer. But they denied it for decades and then they eventually had to pay out billions of dollars. But that was only after many, many people died. And it's pretty similar that many people are dying from opiate dependence. And many people are even switching over from dependence on pain medications to dependence on heroin because heroin's cheaper and it's actually safer because in many ways it's pure. So what you know you're getting, you're getting typically. Um, that's not universally the case, but that's the trend. And now a lot of people are getting hooked on fentanyl and synthetic fentanyl that has this massive um, abuse potential and is super strong. And so there's this massive movement that you used to, opiate dependence was your, your late teenager or maybe early 20s to early 40s, mostly men, women too, that were hooked on heroin. That was the classic, you know, over the last 30, 40 years. But over the last 10 years, that demographic has gone to younger and younger and older and older people. Mm-hmm. Younger and younger people finding and having availability for um, exploring heroin or opiates. It was something like one in three high school seniors in a given county, 90 miles outside of Washington, D.C., which is our nation's capital. One in three high school seniors had tried heroin. Wow. Like, what? That was crazy. That was, it was not even on the landscape where I went to high school. Mm. And if you were, I went to high school in a really conservative South Texas kind of cowboy country. And if you're a pothead, that was bad. (laughs) It was okay to drink yourself stupid on the weekends because that was okay and kind of like accepted. Mm. But if you're a pothead, then you were a loser and you were going to go downhill. And that was around the whole Friday commercial the Nancy and Ronald Reagan 
stare, don't be stupid and use drugs because your brain's going to be mush. And that media left uh, a big impact. And so that was this 25 or year period where there was no psychedelic research going on in the mid seventies, all the way up into the late nineties. And Rick Strassman did his first um, study on DMT. And that was really impressive. And that led to the DMT spear molecule movie. And then it just like slowly started picking up from there. And so all of these medicines have massive potential. And we're just now, I think, scratching the surface yeah. of the scientific potential and the clinical potential, but also even above, above and beyond that is the cultural potential. Like how do we live well together again in harmony, in peace, with an optimized experience of a really dynamic time in human history that, that brings a lot to the surface. So we're, we're coming to the end of the interview. There's just one or two more questions. You mentioned lots of different practices today, obviously loads about plant medicine, and we've talked about uh, meditation and um, breathing and flotation and loads of other things. Um, are, there, are there any other kind of human performance techniques that you are a big fan of or that you practice in the morning what's your morning routine like what what do you do in the morning <laughs> that varies it kind of depends on the season depends on where i'm living depends on how much i'm already doing actively in my body if i already have a pretty daily practice like if i'm building for a while i've built my own house with my hands and i just like the physicality of that so my morning practice is more meditation and it was more uh, finding a still point. Whereas these days, I find myself in front of these technical boxes more and more, and my body is not moving as much as it would likely desire to. So my morning practice is getting up and moving straight away. So I, I have a rebounder, which is a big mini trampoline. Yeah. And bought a really nice one because yeah. I wanted to invest. I knew if I just got a, like, a not so good one, maybe it would sit there. If I bought a really nice one, I was going to use it. And I just rip it for 30 minutes. And then I get on the didge. Sorry, the didgeridoo? Yeah, the didgeridoo. Nice. Because I like breath practices. And I also like rhythm practices. And then I might get on the drum. And all of these are practices that are, are getting me in touch with my body, are getting me in touch with rhythm, are getting me in touch with my breath. And all of these move me into a greater state of like being awake, alive, and aware. Mm -hmm. And um, I've overcome my dislike of cold water. And cold water ex exposure and cold plunges or cold showers yeah. turn me on better than a triple shot of espresso. And I don't have the jitters. Um, so my cold water exposure, typically this point is uh, cold showers, like five to 10 minutes. And in some ways, I'd rather just be in water than be needled with cold little rivulets in the shower, but it, it does the trick. It's surprising how fast the body warms up after you've had a cold shower. It, yeah, it, it, it gets all the sluggish immune modulators and your lymphatic system into action, particularly if you're submerged, because the body thinks holy shit, I'm dying, where everybody wake up and get the busy action fast to improve and, and get our core temperature back up. So it kind of like shocks everything into action. And I find that it stays for hours after that. Thank you so, so much. Finally, 
where can everybody learn more about you? You've got a book out, right? So tell us a little bit about the book and anything else that you'd like to share of interest. Yeah, I have a book uh, out about maybe three years ago called The Concussion Repair Manual. And the two areas that I geek out on a lot are psychedelic research and these kind of conversations and neuroscience after head injury. Because I had six really bad head injuries and the last one of which um, I started having really significant post-concussive syndrome and there were no good treatments. So I put myself in a laboratory and found out what was going to work and eventually put that into a book. because I was working with a lot of athletes who had similar things. So that's why if people hear me on psychedelic research, sometimes I'll get a question like, are you also the dude that wrote the concussion book? Yes, because I see so much overlap between psychology and neurology and hardware and software. So Yes, the concussion repair manual has some pretty good strategies in there for healing from brain trauma. And um, as far as being able to find me, the uh, top three probably websites would be drdanengel.com, fullspectrummedicine.com, and the concussionrepairmanual.com. Awesome. And I'll put all of this in the show notes as well. So, Dr. Dan, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for opening my mind and. Uh, mm supporting me to unlock a few more things in my brain and my body and my soul and all parts of me and I'm, I'm really really excited to um to get your message out to everyone um, and to share your gifts so thank you so so much Okay, so there we have it. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Be Electric. Plant medicine and psychedelics, as I said, are two of my favorite topics to talk about. And I find anything that enhances the human mind and helps us grow fascinating, as you probably figured out by now. Please follow Dr. Dan Engel, E-N-G-E-L, on Instagram, Facebook, and please do look at his website, drdanengel.com too. And if this is your first time listening, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave me a review or follow me on social media. And I will keep an eye out for your feedback so that I can weave it into the content that I'm creating and make sure that it is high quality and it is what you really want to know. Thank you so much to Dr. Dan for such a great and powerful interview and I'll see you all very soon.